This program is brought to you by the Forbes-featured Freedom Hub Health Plan, the alternative to overpriced and restrictive insurance. The Freedom Hub Health Plan is exactly what you need. By Frequency Medicine Associates, supporting health professionals and laypersons with safe and effective advanced telemedicine-like technology that can scan and help rebalance the root causes of stress and illness. By the Planet Lockdown film, which can be seen on the Freedom Hub's Rumble channel along with many great speakers. And by The Pavilion, a 21st century community hub that brings together many of the disruptive innovations featured by the Freedom Hub, including direct pay health care, farm-to-table dining, TED-like Freedom Hub talks, and more. Visit your-mp.com forward slash pavilion solution for details. Welcome, everyone. It's Thursday, another Freedom Hub podcast. We have a good show for you. If you're new to the channel, we have made some changes to our website, so let me bring it up. Uh, you're going to go to your-mp.com, your marketplace for health, wealth, and freedom. And over here on the Your Media, your media Hub, uh, click on that, and you'll come down to the webinars, podcast, whatever you want to call them. And we have Wednesdays, which is health, biz, and politics, more in the health area, of course. And then today's, which expands into regulatory capture and much more politics and so forth um, on Thursdays. So hit the subscribe button. Make sure you're getting our notices every week. And you'll see a little uh, bios on the topics, who's coming up. And then down below are the channels where you can access these, our guests and the topics afterwards, Freedom Hub, um, the BitChute, Rumble, YouTube, and so forth. So it's all there. And I think that's all I'm going to go with today. I'm going to stop this and turn it over to you, Charlie. Thanks, Jim. And for folks who are long-term partners and friends of Freedom Hub, you might recognize Stefan Kinsella our returning guest, returning because he presented the same topic uh, three years ago in February. And he's been attacking intellectual property since the 90s. And what's really interesting is he's a lawyer uh, in the intellectual property field. And for a subset of libertarians, IP is corporate welfare. For other libertarians and conservatives, it is not. And you do find it in the Constitution, and we have a U.S. Patent Office. But as St Stefan, if I'm pronouncing your name correctly, I think Stefan. 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 Uh, I knew it was not Stephen. Um, will tell us the the terms in IP, uh, patents, copyrights, and there's trademarks as well, <clears throat> have a nefarious origin. Um, uh, copyright, for example. Uh, was implicated in censorship around the time of the printing press to uh, do what we're doing now uh, with the government and farm and COVID censoring alternative viewpoints. And patent, uh, much like letters of mark and reprisal were given by the king or queen to pirates to target enemies. Um, and in a more focused way, we deal a lot with healthcare in this weekly event. The corporate welfare called IP has allowed uh, our most powerful special interest, pharma, to bankrupt six people, 
uh, overdrug them and aggravate the real epidemic, which is chronic disease, uh, which allopathy has been helpless to stem and now affects over half the population. But we on the right uh, are always thinking that property is sacred. So how can we attack intellectual property? Well, uh, Stefan's gonna discuss why we can and should. And with that, the floor is yours, Stefan. Thank you, glad to be here again. Thanks for hosting this. Um, um, I think what I'll do is I'll talk for a while on the general background of this topic since uh, probably a lot of your um, your viewers uh, haven't heard this before. Um, so let me let me just say who I am. I'm Stefan Kinsella. I'm a, I'm a retired, basically, patent attorney here in Houston, Texas. I'm from the state of Louisiana, a great state to be from, and uh, <laughs> but not necessarily to to be in anymore. Um, and I was an electrical engineer major, and so I was technical background in in undergrad and master in in, in grad school. And then went to law school and became a lawyer, and then eventually moved into patent law because it was a good field to be in in the in the early '90s. Um, I've been a libertarian since, um, and I've worked in law firms. I was a partner at Dwayne Morris up in Philadelphia for a while, and then a general counsel for a, a high tech laser company, doing all kinds of interesting things. Um, so I um, I know a lot about intellectual property law. Uh, as a lawyer, and including patent law, copyright law, trademark law, trade secret law, other other types of IP law, um, which we call IP law, IP for intellectual property. Um, <clears throat> I've been a libertarian since high school, and um, I was uh, in the beginning like a Randian objectivist, then a minarchist, you know, minarchist, and then. And then increasingly an anarchist. So that's my stance. So I'm like a, a, a Misesian, Austrian, Rothbardian anarchist, pro-property rights libertarian. Okay. That's my perspective. And the one thing that always bothered me when I was a budding libertarian was Ayn Rand's argument for intellectual property. So she was pro-IP. And in the past, most libertarians were pro-IP, just like most free market people in America were pro-IP uh, because – well, number one, they're pro-IP because the word property is given the term intellectual property, and we're, if you're for property rights, you should be for property rights. right? But of course, I think anyone with you know any logic can understand that just because you call something property doesn't mean it's a legitimate property right. Um, we used to have slavery where human beings were called property, and they could be sold and mortgaged, leased. <laughs> And it killed, you know, because they were property. So just because the law or, or someone calls something property doesn't make it so. Uh, you know, lots of people now are welfare status, and they believe that you have a property right in your social security payments and things like that, which is simply not true, at least from a libertarian normative point of view. So just because the word property is attached to something doesn't mean it's property. And in fact, uh, as I'll get into uh, shortly. Um, in the history of this whole thing, patents and copyrights, which are the two core types of intellectual property, uh, were originally thought of as uh, monopoly privileges granted by the state. Um, and uh, when they became to be attacked um, by free market economists in the 1800s because they were like, "What? The, why is the government granting these monopoly privileges, um, the defenders of them, which were the 
industries entrenched and, and dependent upon them at this point, the publishing industry and, and different industries that had patents on their on their products. Um, they responded by by calling um, these monopoly privilege grants by the state. They said, no, they're not a monopoly privilege grant. They're property. They're just a special type of property because people would say, well, if it's property, why does it expire in 18 years or whatever? Um, and the answer was, well, it's a special type of property. It's intellectual property. So it's things that are valuable that are produced by your intellect, uh, like a novel or a painting or um, music or nowadays a film or an invention, something like that. So in any case, um, Ayn Rand's argument for, for intellectual property uh, never made sense to me, unlike most of her other arguments. Like she was good on antitrust, she was good on property rights, good on individual rights, good on the drug war, things like that. But she said, well, it makes sense for patents to only last for a certain amount of time and for copyrights to last only for a certain amount of time because blah, blah, blah. And like the argument made no sense to me. Like if it's a property right, it should last forever. But I think we all recognize that if if copyright and patents lasted forever, society would be doomed, right? Because you know, whoever invented the wheel <laughs> 10,000 years ago, their ancestors would be able to have a monopoly on the wheel, and, and so no one could do anything without permission of them, and society would grind to a halt. So everyone recognizes that an infinite term or a perpetual term for, for I, in ideas makes no sense. Um, but that means it's not like regular property rights. Like if I own a watch or a piece of land or a car, it, theoretically that property right can last forever. I can hand it down to my 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 uh, my descendants um, potentially forever. So there's no reason for for real property rights to expire. So her argument was kind of strained. And what I think happened was Ayn Rand um, was a uh, was was um, an you know she 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 defected or escaped from the Soviet Union. And she utterly hated communism, which I, I do too, and I commiserate with her on that. And she came to America, and America was so much better that she became such an American devotee that she basically took everything that was American, um, like she 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 assumed it was valid, like the Constitution. And the Constitution has a patent and copyright clause, so she assumed, oh well, the Americans got it right, you know. Patent and copyright. So she, she, she basically tried to find a way to justify it, but it was just strained. So this bothered me, and um, and I, it always like there was a one part of libertarian theory that never made sense to me: intellectual property. So when I became a lawyer a few years later, and then when I switched to patent law and took the patent bar and specialized in that, and I started learning about actual IP law, trademark law, copyright law, and especially patent law, I thought, oh. I need to return to this IP issue from a libertarian point of view, and I can be the one who can figure it out because unlike Ayn Rand and the other – they just didn't know the law. So I figured they, they fumbled their case for IP because they, they just weren't good at law, but I actually know the law, and I'm a libertarian, so I can figure it out. So I struggled, and I struggled, and, and I, I kept trying to find better arguments for IP, and, 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 and everything failed because it, I kept… I kept running into the same problems I had with her argument. It was always arbitrary uh, things like that. So the more I learned about it, 
it dawned on me one day, oh, the reason I can't justify it is because it's actually unjustifiable. It's like contrary to libertarian principles. Like intellectual property is a violation of property rights because what intellectual property ultimately does, although it goes by the name intellectual property, is it gives um, it gives what we would call in the common law and in, uh, in the civil law, which is what Louisiana, my state is in the, in the, in the European continent. Um, and in in the common law, in the civil law, it would be called a negative servitude, and in the common law, negative easement, uh, which means it's a grant to some other third party to restrict your use of your own property. Okay, now that's perfectly legitimate as long as you consent to it. Just like if someone kisses you and you consent to it, it's consent, it's 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 legitimate. But if you don't consent to it, it's a it's assault and battery, right? Because it's a use of your your body without your permission. So the whole issue in libertarianism is consent. When you own a resource, you have the right to consent or to do not to deny consent to other people, right? So if by contract, as the owner of a resource, like if I own a house, my neighbor and myself and all of our other neighbors in our neighborhood, we can all come together and agree to a homeowners association. Where we have what's called a restrictive covenant, we can all agree by contract to limit our use of our property, of our houses to certain uses, like to to to, to uh, non-commercial uses. Like you can't build a factory here; it has to be, um, you know, a, a home or something like that. Or you can't paint your house uh, some gaudy color like purple or orange or something like that. Um, those kind of restrictions on property. In the form of a negative servitude or a negative easement, sometimes called a homeowners association or restrictive covenant, um, are perfectly legitimate because the people contractually consented to it. But what intellectual property is ultimately is it's the government, the, the state, granting to a third party a negative easement or servitude over your property that you didn't consent to. So a, a copyright is basically the government saying um, – if I if I publish a book, then I can prevent people from using their printing press to, to make a copy of that book. Or if I register an invention in the patent system, then I can use the government courts to prevent people from using their factories to make a similar uh, product that's covered by my patent. Okay, now the re so so this all occurred to me over a period of years and i finally became anti anti ip and i realized this was the core to understanding the nature of property rights in general if you understand property rights are an exclusive right to control a resource that that you homesteaded that means you appropriated from an unknown state in the state of nature or that you purchased by contract from a previous owner this property right gives you the right to deny other people the right to use it right, and to control how that, that resource is used. But these property rights are always uh, rights to control a resource uh, over a thing that people can have a conflict over um, in any case. So um, I, as I looked into this, I realized – so the history of this is, is interesting. So everyone – you know, we think of IP as a type of property right because it's part of the capitalist American Western system. And it is, but so is so are tariffs, and so are war wars every ten years, and uh, central banking and inflation, and slavery for a while, and and Jim Crow laws, and the drug war and conscription. So there are lots of things that are part of this Western American system, which we're used to thinking of as part of our our heritage and our history, but they're not really 
uh, justifiable in libertarian terms, right, or even just common sense justice terms. Um, so we have to stop thinking of just because patent and copyright are in the Constitution, then they're legitimate. First of all, not everything in the Constitution is legitimate, uh, like taxes and uh, and, and, and other and, and slavery in the beginning. Um, furthermore, this is a, a side note, a footnote here. Um, uh, as I pointed out um, in some writings, um, um, if you understand the way the, 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 the U.S. government was founded, it was essentially founded in – um, 1789, right, with the ratification of the new constitution after the previous Article of Confederation and the, the Revolution of 1776. So 1789 is when the U.S. was founded, um, but uh, in, in, in the, founded by the by the ratification of the constitution by the requisite number of, of states, um, nine of the eleven or whatever it was, nine of the thirteen, but. Um, uh, in the Constitution, there was a clause that said the Congress has the power to basically uh, uh, grant patents and copyrights, right? Patents for inventions and copyrights for original creative works. Um, now, the reason they did this, I'll get to in a second. But so, 1789, the uh, the the Constitution was ratified, and Congress was granted the authority to grant patent and copyright. But in 1791, the Bill of Rights was added, ten amendments to the Constitution. Constitution, which were uh, granted, which were ratified by the next Congress, so it was a, it was a subsequent amendment. And as we know, the way that law works and the way constitutional law works is that a later uh, statute or legislation supersedes a previous one; it can repeal it, and a later constitutional amendment can repeal a previous one. So, just like we had a prohibition in the U.S. in the early 1900s. And then a few years later, when we realized it was a disaster, um, there was another constitutional amendment repealing prohibition. So the reason that prohibition is not the law now is because the prohibition of prohibition <laughs> came later. So that's that's how it works. And so the First Amendment to the Constitution in 1791 says Congress has no right to infringe on freedom of the press. Okay. Now it is crystal clear, and the Supreme Court has recognized that copyright actually does infringe on freedom of the press because it gives someone the right to, to prevent someone from publishing a book <laughs> because it's protected by copyright. So the Supreme Court recognizes that there is a so-called tension between the First Amendment and between um, the copyright clause. Um, and now what the Supreme Court has done is they try to balance the tension, just like they balance the tension between patent law and the antitrust act because the antitrust law says you can't have a monopoly, but the patent law grants monopolies to people which – or grants uh, an exclusive legal privilege to people which lets them achieve monopolies, and so they try to balance that tension too. So when, when you hear a judge saying there's a tension, you know you're in a status system of legislated law where the legislation uh, comes from different congresses or different legislatures, and they don't necessarily have to be just or natural or compatible with each other. They conflict with each other. So um, and when, when, when laws conflict, then judges have no choice but to try to balance them or to try to choose which one they're going to follow. So in the case of copyright, what the, what the Supreme Court does is they say, well, there's a tension between the First Amendment 
and copyright because copyright infringes the First Amendment. So if they were going to be First Amendment absolutists, which they usually are, they would strike down all copyright act, the, the entire copyright act, because it violates freedom of the press. But instead they say, well, there's a tension, so we're going to try to balance it. But my view is they shouldn't try to balance it because, um, again, the First Amendment was ratified in 1791. So I think it in effect repealed the copyright authorization clause of 1789 because it because it came later and because they're in conflict with each other. So if you're a constitutionalist, you could have a good argument that copyright uh, is unconstitutional because it violates the First Amendment and also the Eighth Amendment um, uh, uh, on um, uh, unjust you know uh, uh, unjust punishments and things like that. Um, and you could make some similar arguments about aspects of the patent law as well. Um, so, and, and not only that, there's also um, the um, uh, statutory damages are part of copyright law. So, uh, the damages from violating someone's copyright are not measured in actual damages, but they're measured statutorily. Like there's $75,000 or $150,000 per infringing event, no matter what the actual damages are. And you could argue that it violates the, um, uh, the, uh, the Bill of Rights as well. Um, so as I realized this, so I started looking into the history, and the history is that um, um, back in say, let's say, let's go back to Europe. We can go back to Venice and the in 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 the uh, uh, or just uh, just England in general. Um, there was a practice of the monarch, right, whoever the king or queen was, of granting these letters patent to people. And a letter patent – patent means it's, a, it's from the Latin word patente, which means open. So it's an open letter, which you would you know they would hand it to the guy they're giving this monopoly to so they could show people like I've got the permission of the king or queen to do this. So I've got the permission of the king or queen to, uh, to have this trade route or to have this tea company here or have this, this territory in India or, or in, in the new – in America, um, in the Americas. Um, or it could be I have a, a letter patent to have the uh, the monopoly on playing cards in a given town or a given region, or the monopoly on selling sheep's you know selling selling um, sheep uh, 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 what do you call it? sheep fur <laughs> you know uh, whatever. And, and the point is, it was just it was just a monopoly grant by the government. And which prohibited people from competing. And they, the reason you do that is because the person you give the monopoly to could sell things at a monopoly price, right? Because they have no competition, because competition is like literally illegal. There were people arrested and and like literally killed um, by government goons for selling buttons that were in violation of this guild's protections or Saying selling playing cards that weren't stamped by the king's uh, monopoly grant, things like that. It's crazy. Rothbard's documented this. Um, so, uh, so the origin of patents is in the practice of government, the, the the king or queen granting these special privileges to people in exchange for something, right? In exchange for what? Like they would sometimes say, "I'm going to give you this monopoly if you will help collect taxes for me in this town, right? Or if you'll give me some of the returns back." So it was it was always like this this kind of a and it, it got to be increasingly abused. So in 1623 in England, the Parliament got so concerned about these increasing abuses that they passed a, a, a statute called the Statute of Monopolies. Notice the word monopoly is in there. They 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 weren't shy about naming things by their names back then. And the Statute of Monopolies says, all right, the king 
the monarch cannot keep granting these letters patent except for inventions like they so they made they carved out an exception and they they left the power of the state to grant letters patent or monopolies for inventions so they were trying to rein in the this abuse this eventually led to in the US uh, the constitutional provision for patents um, which led to the patent system and the patent act that we have now <clears throat> now for copyright what happened was uh, when the printing press emerged, uh, before that before that time, it was really hard to copy books. So you had all these uh, kind of re uh, uh, church-related scribes inscribing or copying things. So so you had a central authority. The church and the state, kind of in combination, could control what could be copied. So w like which texts could be made had copies made of and given to the public. So they control thought. Like, you know, if you don't want the Catholics to have the Catholic, if you don't have Protestants have the Catholic Bible or vice versa, you could do you could do that. But when the printing press emerged, that threatened the that chokehold that the state and the church had on 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 censoring thought, basically. Um, and so initially, like in England, there was the stationers company, which was which was like a about a 100 year monopoly uh, of like a, a guild that was the only authorized printing company. So Again, the government could control it. By, by the way, Bitcoiners might understand this a little bit with their anti-censorship. right? So when you have a chokehold, you have a way that the government or the authorities can control, then they can control what they want to control like thought. Um, but when, when the stationer's company um, uh, monopoly um, expired, instead of renewing it, the English parliament in 1709 enacted… The Statute of Anne, which basically gave the copyright to authors. Okay. And so everyone thinks that was like a democratic pro individual move. However, it, it wasn't because it's simply, it's simply because at that, at that, there was no Amazon published, you know, self publishing at that time. If you want to publish your book, you still have to go to a guild, you have to go to a printing company. Which the government still could control. So what happened was it led to the system that we we still have the remnants of now, which are breaking down, which is this kind of publishing model where an author writes a book and they assign all their rights to the publisher, and then they're basically slaves of the publisher. If you remember, Prince, the artist in America, um, actually had shaved the word slave into his face and changed his name because he was enslaved by a publishing contract. Which restricted his rights to even use his own music because so this is the legacy of this old model. So basically, the old model didn't change much with the statute of man. So basically, what I'm saying is American copyright law, American patent law traces back to the statute of monopolies of 1623 and also what was done in Venice earlier than that. And and the copyright law traces back to censorship. So the idea that laws Based upon restriction of competition and favoritism and protectionism and mercantilism and censorship could be justified as part of a capitalist free market pro-property rights order is virtually insane, and this is what happened in the 1800s. So the U.S. was founded by right, 1776, 1789, and we start becoming a more and more major industrial force, part of the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s. And 
free market economists started waking up and being born and saying, what the hell is this practice of the government granting restrictions on trade and restrictions of what you can publish? I mean, this isn't this like a restraint on trade? Isn't this contrary to free market principles? And as I said earlier, um, the defenders of the system, which by now were these entrenched industries, the publishing industry and various uh, technical industries, they started mounting a rearguard defense, which was no, it's an intellectual property right. It's actually natural. Some of them even argue it's a natural property right, even though it expires in X years, which makes no sense if it's if it's a natural right. Um, and so they won the day, right? There was a temporary win by some, like in, in I think in, in the Netherlands and in, in Italy and Switzerland. I don't know for a good 20, 30, 40 years, they abolished patents for a while until you know the the weight of the U.S. pharmaceutical industry came to bear, <laughs> and we we basically twisted the arms of other countries to adopt these draconian IP laws. Um, here, and what's interesting is you'll have people say, oh, Kinsella is a commie because you're pro-IP – I mean you're anti-IP. You're anti-property rights, um, so you're a commie. It's like and, – and, and I'll say, well, yeah, but <laughs> you realize that North Korea and the Soviet Union uh, 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 have and had patent copyright laws? Do you wonder why? <laughs> if If it was – if it was uh, if it was communist to oppose IP law, why would the most com what? So basically, every country has IP laws, right? Um, so it's it's not like it's compatible or incompatible with whether the country is communist or, or anti-communist. Um, in any case, so the, the basic case against IP law is that it it violates property rights and that we should have a free market and that there's nothing wrong with the competition. And the basic way to understand that is from Austrian economics, which I'm an inherent of. And it's you, if you understand human action in terms of what Mises called praxeology, which was the logic of human action, um, you understand that human action is um, we live in a world where there's change, right? I'm not one of the I don't believe there's time is a fourth dimension. I think time is what is the way we describe the fact that things change. So we always live in a in the present. We have a memory of the past, of our history, and we know there's a future coming, and we have some awareness of our current situation, and we have some idea of what's coming. And what we have what's what Mises calls um, um, we're, we're we're dissatisfied with with what we Im imagine is coming in the future, right? And this this psychological dissatisfaction or uneasiness, he calls it, with the future. Leads us to think: Can I can I take some action now that will change the future? So this is what all our lives are. All human action is always imagining some immediate or distant or near future that we don't like. Like we don't like the image of what we think is coming if we don't intervene. What does it mean to intervene? To intervene means to employ scarce resources. Which are causally efficacious. That means they can make a change, and we can divert the course of events to make the future be different than what it would be if we don't intervene. And if we achieve what we wanted to achieve, then we call that psychic profit. And sometimes that's monetary profit, not always, but sometimes, right? But the point is, all human action is always an attempt to uh, use our bodies to employ and intervene with the world and using scarce resources. To intervene with the course of events, to change the way things would be, to achieve a future state of affairs that we think is better. 
than what would than, than would happen without our intervention, right? That's what human action is. Um, but that human action necessarily has two main ingredients. One is our bodies and the freedom to use them, right? Which is why political freedom is, is important in civil rights. Um, and also the employment of scarce resources because we can't live alone, naked, and bare in the world. We we employ resources, clothing, food, uh, wood, spears, land, you know, animals, whatever. Um, so we employ these resources, but we're also not dumb, brute animals living by instinct. We use our intellectual minds to understand the way the world is, to understand what the causal laws are so we know what tools can make an effect, and we have some idea about what the future might be. That's our intellect. That's our ideas. So all human action employs scarce resources, which should be protected by property rights so that we can use them without conflict. right? And all, all action is guided by ideas. So there's two main ingredients of all successful human action. The availability and the use of scarce resources to manipulate and intervene in the course of affairs to create a new universe basically in the future, <clears throat> and the ideas we have in our head, and by ideas I mean basically what we call technological recipes, like which is knowledge of the causal laws and the way we can rearrange things to make things work right to intervene successfully to change the course of affairs. So all, all successful action has to be… Um, employ scarce resources, which are protected by property rights, and guided by ideas or information or knowledge. Right. The problem with intellectual property is it it sees that knowledge because it's valuable and it is valuable because it's a key it's a key ingredient of successful action. Uh, because they basically have made the the Marxian mistake of thinking that value and labor. Is property in some sense, and the Lockean mistake of thinking that um, we own our labor, which you don't own your labor. Labor is an action you perform. You own your body. You don't own what you do with your body. That makes no sense, right? Because ownership is a property rights concept that applies to scarce resources. So, in any case, um, um, to, to IP law tries to protect the idea part of human action, but ideas are not a scarce resource. If if I know how to make a net to catch fish more efficiently than with a spear or with my hands, um, or a grenade, I don't know. Um, then um, if someone else sees me making a net, they can emulate that action. They can learn from my action. They can make their own net with their own bamboo and their own string or whatever, and they can catch their own fish. And that doesn't violate my property rights because there's no conflict. They can catch their own fish with their own net. So they didn't steal my idea of a net. They copied. They learned from. They emulated. They competed with me maybe. But there's nothing wrong with free market competition. There's nothing wrong with learning. There's nothing wrong with emulating. The reason that we are richer today as a human species is not because we're smarter. In fact, we probably are stupider than the Romans because of the of, of the dysgenic effects of of welfare, I don't know. You know, I don't think we're smarter as a species, but we know more. We know more because we've accumulated knowledge. It's, it's the it's the unilateral, the linear nature of time, right? It keeps marching forward, and every generation gets to build upon the knowledge and the recipes and the information the past learned, and keep adding to it and accumulating it. So we have a stock of knowledge that's far far greater than the past. This is why we're richer.
Plus, we have more people, which is also a good thing. But the, the primary reason is technology keeps improving, and it keeps improving because of the way that knowledge is accumulated. And the problem with patent law is that it impedes and slows that down. Now, it can't stop it because you know it puts a 17-year break on it in effect. right? Uh, so the knowledge that we've accumulated as a species in 2023 is far less than it would have been if we hadn't had a patent system for the last 50 years. right? So we're at 2023 levels. We could have been at 2089 levels or whatever. Um, so the patent system literally kills people because it makes us poorer. I mean, the reason Turkey is suffering from this um, horrible earthquake right now is because their buildings uh, are, are, you know, are horrible. Why? Because they're poor. Why are they poor? Because they're not capitalist, right? So, like, the more capitalism you have, which means the more free market protection of property rights and the ability to uh, compete and develop new ideas, the richer you are, and the richer you are, the more people can live, and the more we can defeat. Uh, the natural problems of nature. Now, let me turn briefly to pharmaceuticals, and then I'll I'll, I'll let you guys open the floor if you want. Uh, Charles, you want me to keep going for five more minutes on pharmaceuticals? Please. Okay. So, so let's talk to the case of pharmaceuticals. So, I am in favor of complete abolition of patent and copyright law. Um, although uh, anything that would reduce the terms or the or the scope of enforcement or the or the scope or the or the or the penalties would would be an improvement. Um, um, but it's what's interesting is so there are two main cases. Say let's let's take patent law because it's the most one the one that most affects um, pharmaceuticals. Um, the the two main defenses of patent law are, are sort of moral or natural rights or property oriented and utilitarian. So the property rights case is you created something you own it. Of course, the mistake here is that creation is not and never was a source of property rights. Um, this confusion was introduced by Locke. Unfortunately, the way he argued for natural rights by saying that God gives you ownership of yourself, that includes ownership of your labor, and therefore if you mix your labor that you own with some unowned resource that God gave to mankind in common, then you've inextricably mixed your labor with it, and so you're the only one who can claim a title to it. Um, his argument in the end is correct, but he makes an unnecessary couple of steps, in which one is that you own your labor… Because you own yourself. That's not the right way to look at it. You don't own your labor. Anyway, that led to what's called Lockean creationism or what I call that, which, which is the labor theory of property, and I believe it gave rise uh, – it's, it's given rise to the whole intellectual property idea and confusion, and it also gave rise to the labor theory of value of Marx, which led to Marxism and communism, tens of millions of, of murders and deaths. Um, so I think the entire concept of ownership of labor… Is a huge mistake, um, but that's the natural rights theory, right? Um, so you don't own what you create. Let me explain briefly why you don't own what you create. What you own is what you homestead from the state of nature that's unowned, but by mixing your labor with it, because that imprints a, a link between you and the thing. You're the first one to use it. That's the reason why. It's not because you own your labor. It's because you've established a link between you and the thing, um, or if you buy it by someone from contract. So the, the there are basically only two ways. There's a third way, but it's 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 it's, it's it'll derail us. That's um, uh, restitution. But so basically, if you 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 find something that's unowned, you can own it. Or if you buy it from someone, then you can own it. None of those involve creation. Creation means transformation or what we call production in economics. 
But what that really means is rearranging raw input materials into a more valuable configuration. Okay, so and that's fine. That requires labor. That requires effort. That requires the intellect. It requires hard work. Um, and when you do that, you increase your wealth, but you don't increase your property rights, and you don't you don't acquire property rights. The reason that you don't acquire property rights is because if you own the input factors, like I take a hunk of marble and I carve a statue out of it, I don't own the statue because I carved it. I own the statue because I already owned the marble. I own the marble because I bought it from someone who owned it or because I found it unowned in the woods and I appropriated it. So ownership comes from owning the input factors. On the other hand, if someone hires me to carve a statue out of their hunk of marble, I don't own the resulting statue. The owner does. I only get the money that he agreed to pay me. Right. So creation is not sufficient or necessary for ownership. So creation has nothing to do with ownership. This is the mistake of the Lockeans and the Randians and some and some libertarians now. Um, it is true that by and large, when you create something, when you apply your effort to it, you do get the rewards of your labor because you can sell it on the free market for a profit. But it's there's not a guarantee, right? I could I could invest in a new company and no one wants my product and I've lost out, right? So there there is no right to a return on your labor. Now the utilitarian case is that um, there's a public goods argument that that um, um, for most types of goods like selling I don't know a plow or a car, it's really hard to make a factory, and so free market competition is fine. Like I mean, McDonald's can have Burger King compete with them because it's it's not easy to compete with Burger King. So if, if McDonald's comes up with the idea of a fast food restaurant for hamburgers and they start making a lot of money, they make a profit. That profit signal is a price signal. It's information. It's transmitted through the free market system. It alerts people to the fact that, oh, consumers like to get hamburgers delivered for 33 cents a piece, and so I'm going to make a competing chain called Wendy's or Burger King or whatever, and they have to… Go get investors and buy buildings and hire people, and so eventually McDonald's early monopoly price gets eroded because there's free market competition. They have to keep innovating, blah, 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 and the idea is that for certain types of goods that are heavily intellectual-based like a novel or an invention like an iPhone, like which is a touch you know, a smartphone with a touch uh, rectangular surface and rounded corners and a touchscreen um, that that the competitor can just copy the idea of the originator really easily um, and start competing too easily. So the fear here is that competition is too easy. Like they don't mind free, free market competition when it's hard, but when it's too easy, they don't like it. Like if I sell a new Harry Potter novel and people can just copy it easily because it's easy to copy books in today's day and age, then they're gonna they can sell the book for a lot less than mine, and I have to cut my price right away. So my my initial monopoly profit from being the first mover doesn't last as long. Um, um, and so therefore, we have we would have an underproduction of goods because people know that ahead of time, if I make a pharmaceutical or if I make a book, that people can compete with me if there's no protection. So the government has to step in and grant me a monopoly, a window of protection from competition. So I will have an incentive to produce. Now, of course, this is just micromanagement of the economy. It's trying to provide incentives to, to fix what they perceive to be a market failure, right? Because this is a public good. Now, Austrians and libertarians reject the idea of market failure and especially of public goods, right? There's no such thing. Um, there is no reason why I can't sell a book. <laughs> 
uh, I can sell a book, even though people can make a copy of it. It's just, yeah, it is harder for me to sell it for the same price I would have sold it for in the 19, you know, 1950s. Okay, deal with it. I mean, if you remember back in the in the 80s, you know, there was Madonna and these types of artists, Prince, Chicago. They were making tons of money off of CDs because CDs were so popular. But that was a window of opportunity that lasted about 17 years. I don't know, 20 years. And then finally streaming happened and Spotify and all this. And now you can't you can't become a billionaire selling CDs anymore. Okay, that's fine. You can't make a lot of money selling LPs anymore. Okay, that's fine. Technology changes. Society moves on. You have to find new ways to adapt. And as one of our slogans is, your failed business model is not my problem. You got to figure out a way to do it. No one's guaranteed a profit. Now, in the case of pharmaceuticals, um, um, so what I was going to say is some libertarians will say that um, they they concede most of, say, my arguments against patent and copyright law, which I regard as totally evil and it's destructive of human civilization because they put us back by decades or centuries in our in our progress and our in our wealth. Um, um, they'll say that I, I agree with you, but for pharmaceuticals, it's a special case. That's a, that's the one place where we need patents because someone spends a billion dollars to make a drug, and it's so easy for a generic competitor to just make a knockoff without having to spend that money, and they could undercut this monopoly price that the first guy could charge right away so they won't be able to rec recoup their cost. You're always here about recouping your cost. Um, so here's my response to that. Um, again, <laughs> we have a, a bizarre interlocked socialist system in the U.S. Okay, we, we don't I, we don't have capitalism. We have some degree of it, but not enough. Um, so we have various things that come together to completely corrupt and distort the pharmaceutical industry. Number one, think about tort law. Because of tort law. There's insane liability, so everyone becomes risk averse. Doctors they have to give malpractice insurance, et cetera, right? Which means they're going to take the advice of, um, of, 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 of the medical industry and the government on what things to prescribe to people. They're going to take the safe road. We have socialized, quasi-socialized uh, healthcare with medical insurance, which resulted from Milton Friedman's harebrained idea in the in in World War II to. Um, to try to escape the wage and price controls by allowing companies to give their employees a perk of you know health care without it being taxed as a way to try to give them some incentive to work because you couldn't pay them more because it was illegal all this kind of bullshit right so that's that that tax break has corrupted and distorted the entire american healthcare system right it's turned it into um um you don't pay for your own health care it's, it's it's filtered through an insurance company and then it's quasi-socialized through through the government, and then you also have the prescri prescription system where it's illegal to just go go to the store and just buy what you want. You have to get permission of a doctor, and then you have to go through a, a pharmacist and get it. So that's all – it's all controlled by the government, and then you have the FDA approval system, which means that when you want to get a new drug approved, um, it's going to cost a lot of money because of the um, – um, the you know the trial process, not really the innovation process. The innovation process is actually pr pr pretty easy. I think that the uh, the uh, the mRNA vaccines, I heard they were they were developed in like eleven days or something because they had the technology ready to go. But then you had to go through the trial process, which I don't think they did. They don't did they didn't do that right because they were given exceptions by the government. So and and Johnson they they waived their patents anyway. So this idea that you need patents for drugs makes no sense. Um, and and. and 
you know, if you so the combination of all these things means that drugs are extremely expensive. Doctors recommend drugs that are not always necessary, and that in the case of COVID were not even tested. Um, and they do that because in, so instead of recommending uh, uh, some kind of or ancient tribal, you know, organic drug or something that's cheap, because drug companies can't patent that anymore, so they have to. Patent the new thing, right? So the patent system, the insurance system, the prescription system, the government involvement in healthcare results in a system where the government is always recommending extremely expensive drugs, um, which which are not always even better than the natural remedies, um, and 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 then the patent system is justified on the grounds that it's expensive to make the drugs, but it's expensive to make the drugs because we have tariffs we have minimum wage law we have regulations we have taxes on businesses which makes their costs extremely crazy and we have the FDA approval process which is insane and outrageous right um so it's like the government says oh hey we're going to impose this billion dollar cost on your next drug with the FDA system but to make it up to you we're going to we're going to grant patent monopolies to let you charge a monopoly price for a while which means that millions of people in Africa die because they can't get the AIDS drugs now, right? And people have to pay $30,000 a year for some diabetes drug or something. And then the, the government comes in and says, oh, like Biden recently, oh, we're going to cap uh, with insulin at $35 a shot. It's like, did it ever occur to you to just stop granting them a, mono a patent monopoly on insulin so that they don't have the monopoly power to stop competitors from driving the price down naturally? No, they they create a problem and then they 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 take credit for solving the problem they created. Um, instead of saying the solution to the cost of the FDA system is to grant people a monopoly from the unconstitutional and illegal and immoral patent system, why not abolish the FDA and abolish the patent law and then let the free market handle it? That's my take on all this, and I will stop now and, and allow um, allow questions. Uh, Stefan, that was fantastic and so orderly in your building the argument. Abolish the FDA, abolish IP. That's music to my ears. <laughs> what would happen to healthcare if you didn't have FDA approval? Would we all die from dangerous drugs? Or is there sort of an underwriter's laboratory uh, private uh, system of certification that would re replace it? Absolutely. I think I think that's of course that's what would happen. I think you would have private um certifications. And by the way, if people want to buy a drug that is not certified, they have the right to do that. People have the right to do what they want with their own lives. But I think most people would be willing to pay a little bit more for a drug that has a certification of approval from an underwriter's laboratory. But I don't imagine that the underwriter's laboratory system would be anywhere near the insane expense of the FDA process, which we know in, in the old days, we libertarians would call the FDA the, the federal death administration because they have an incentive to um, to just deny drugs because e even if a drug would save lives, if there's any possibility it could cause a problem, they just deny it because it, if, it, if, if they allow it and it causes problems, then they get blamed for it. So they have an incentive to be too risk averse, although not with COVID drugs, apparently. <laughs> Charles Ford. I just have a very simple question, getting back to the tension between the creator and what he creates. Um, I'm, I'm a frustrated author. Um, I've got six books published now. 
uh, the income stream I spend at Starbucks each month. So it's not about me making a whole lot of money. But my question is simply this. Under your system, my book could be published by anyone. And the publisher that I'm using for me has to pay me a stipend that puts me at a competitive disadvantage, which means I'm going to end up with no revenue ultimately in the marketplace on the book that I've created. Now, I'm sorry, I, I think there is just a natural tension there that you've discussed in detail, but I just wanted to point out to you that that would be a very strong disincentive for the creation of something that's intellectual in nature, as opposed to a product like a pill or a prescription or an automobile or a new industrial process. Just wanted to see what your comment on that might be. No, that's and that's a that's a fair concern, but l- let me tell you how I think about that. Um, so first of all, <laughs> you're kind of conceding that you know you're not making a good deal of money right now, and you live right now under a copyright regime. So copyright apparently is not doing that much for you, right? So that that's one thing. Um, so it's not clear that it would be worse without copyright. Most authors don't make a lot of money anyway. Um, I have a post you might want to look at on my website. I won't get into too, de- too much detail. It's called Conversation with an Author on C4SIF.org. But it, it, I'm imagining like how a J.K. Rowling, um, who's like a billionaire now in England, right? how she could have made a lot of money um, in a copyright-free world. Um, um, and so imagine that she writes – the first Harry Potter book, which she did like on, on the subway or the train when she was like on welfare or something like it was just a passion hobby of hers. Um, and um, let's say she self-publishes it on Amazon, like in a Kindle or something, um, knowing that people can knock it off if it becomes popular, but she's up, she's obscure. No one's ever heard of her. She actually wants to be famous, right? She doesn't want you know, people start copying it. It's, it's like it's a sign that she's popular. But anyway, so let's say she sells, I don't know, a hundred thousand copies for for five dollars on Amazon. Um, that's half a million dollars, right? On Amazon. And then people and so the thing is pirates can't pirate everything. They have to wait and see what's worth pirating. So they wait and see, oh, which of these junk books is going to be popular. And if if J.K. Rowling's first novel sells half sells hundred thousand copies or a million copies, they're going to realize, oh, okay, this is the one we need to start copying. So they're going to start selling a pirated copy for a dollar, let's say, I don't know. And so right away, J.K. Rowling has to cut her cost or on Amazon because she, now she can't compete with the pirates. Although I don't think that's completely true because, you know, if I'm buying a copy of of, of Harry Potter, the first book. Um, if if there's a five dollar copy on Amazon from her authorized by her, and there's a one dollar copy on some sketchy Russian website, I might get the five dollar copy because I'm I'm sure that it's not adulterated, right? And it's not corrupted, and maybe it's updated with the most recent changes or whatever. Just like people buy Tylenol, and today for five dollars a bottle, when when there's acetaminophen generic on the shelf for two dollars, right next to it. Why do people do that? They do it because they 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 trust they trust the the brand right and the, and the source. Um, so anyway, the point is, you could imagine J.K. Rowling could have made you know half a million dollars, a million dollars easily on her first book. She's oh, it's a surprise hit. There's now there's millions of people around the world who are Harry Potter fans. So now what could she do? Okay, there's no copyright, so she knows people can copy the book without her permission. Uh, and so she saw what happened the first time. So. Um, so she says, okay, 
all my fans out there, here's my website, jkrolling.com, and uh, I've got Harry Potter number two finished, ready to go. As soon as I get three million subscribers who pay 10, 10 bucks each, I'll give it to you. And she's going to get those people, so now she makes $30 million or whatever the numbers are, right? And she could repeat that seven more times, right? In the meantime, let's imagine someone – four movie studios start making a movie version of the first book, and they don't need her permission to do that. But one of them says, well, if we get the endorsement of the author and her cooperation and her consultation, then we will probably sell more tickets than our competitors because the fans of Jake, of Harry Potter are going to want to do this. But this is just so so, and of course, so they say we're going to give her ten percent of the mo of the movie ticket profits or whatever. So now she's, I mean, she could easily become a billionaire that way too, or very very wealthy. The point is, you have to adapt somehow to the market. Um, but in the end, I agree with the uh, the 19th century uh, American um, anarchist libertarian um, um, uh, Benjamin Tucker who said that, look, if you want to keep your ideas to yourself, keep them to yourself. The, the fact of information is that it can spread easily, and it, it should spread easily, and this is the reason that the human race is, is so wealthy and that we're so culturally rich is that good ideas can spread and that we've retained knowledge from the ancients and from – from, from the cultural heritage of the past. So what I'm saying is I think copyright is not helping you now, and in any case, because of the internet, the world's greatest copying machine, it's impossible to stop people from copying. You can maybe stop some big publishers legally, institutionally, but you know, you go to Pirate Bay or what – not Pirate Bay, what, um, uh, the, the recent book website that was shut down. I forgot the name of it. But in any case, you can find pirated copies of movies, books. Photographs, pictures, paintings all over the internet right now, and that's even with copyright law. So it's impossible to stop people from copying information. So if you are going to build your business model on selling your information, you got to find a way to do it that's feasible. Um, and I don't think that saying we need copyright law to help us to have better incentives is the right way to go because it's immoral, and it never works. And um, anyway, it's not the job of the government to find the right incentives. The, the, the purpose of law, if we're going to have law in the government, the purpose is to do justice. Justice means to respect, respect people's property rights, to protect their property rights, to identify and respect and enforce their property rights, and you simply don't have a property right to a profit. You've got to find a way to do that. That's my response. Thank you. Um, uh, before our last question, I think uh, Jonathan's hands up, and we're running. We've, we're out of time. Um, there, I, I agree with you. I mean, there have been a lot of, uh, we've really been held back in progress, hundreds of years maybe or more, uh, especially in areas I know inventors in the uh, free energy market dealing with that sort of stuff, even have had, I don't know, somehow their patents taken or whatever happened, but um, it's been very restrictive. So I know we could be living a lot better and, and we're not. So anyway, let me jump to... Um, Jonathan, uh, your hands up for the last question. Jonathan, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry, I was trying to unmute myself. Yeah, that's uh, awesome, Stephen. That was a great and interesting discussion. Uh, I kind of have two two different questions. Uh, the first one has to do with body autonomy and how IP, if the IP was somehow um, 
combined with the body, how that would affect body autonomy. Um, if there was some type of patent on the um, intellectual property that had some type of uh, therapy aspect. Um, maybe, maybe, to, like the, maybe like the vaccine that's happening now? Uh, yeah, without, without being hyper-specific, uh, you know, <laughs> potentially something like that. That's the first part of the question. And then the second part is actually has to do with uh, more licensing and access. And it was kind of a, uh, an aspect to the previous question, which is if you could token gate something um, underneath some type of subscription model where you grant access through a token that the token has an, uh, an expiration date or the token has a, a, a value that you could monetize um, would that be a solution for um, uh, a business model um, the, that could solve the, the previous question? Um, well, I, I've got a uh, I've got a little pamphlet called uh, "Do Business Without IP," which goes into some practical aspects of how you can try to avoid some of the traps of being sucked into the IP vortex as a businessman. Uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't use it in today's world sometimes, uh, but um, um, at, but as for bodily autonomy, um, I'm not sure exactly what you're getting at, but but I will say that um, there are aspects of intellectual property that are applied today, especially with copyright law, which actually do affect bodily autonomy. So um, I've got some examples on my website somewhere, uh, C4SIF. I think um, there's some crazy cases where um, like um, there are people that have sued for infringement of copyright for someone having a tattoo. Like on their face or their arm, then the tattoo is a copyrighted image, right? So, in principle, are they saying that you could use the state of the government to make someone have to cover up or to actually have the tattoo erased? You sh shouldn't you have the right to do whatever you want to do with your own body? And there are cases of people. Uh, there are some yoga yoga practitioners who claim to copyright or patent their yoga moves, so they're. If that was true, then they would have the power of government that could prevent people from like going into a yoga studio and moving their bodies in certain ways. That's a type mm -hmm. of you know it's a, a, in a way it's a type of slavery. And there are similar things with certain dance moves. Some people try to patent or copyright certain dance moves. Um, and um, and 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 I think I, I think there was some story about Susan Boyle from American Idol. She was prevented from singing a certain song on stage because it was copyrighted. Now that is a restriction on her freedom to do as she wants with her own body in front of a group of you know uh, uh, people that are consenting to hear what she's trying to say or how she's trying to move around. So I think that the ultimate problem of patenting copyright is, as I said before, it's an unconsensual negative servitude. But that means it gives third parties a right to prevent you from using your own property as you see fit. But sometimes that includes your own body, and that's even worse, right? And in fact, in in patent law. In the U.S., anyway, there's um, there are two types of patents, or at least two. One one is on on, a, on an apparatus like a machine. Uh, another is on co compounds, which is what pharmaceuticals are based on. And the other is a, a method or a process, a way of doing something. And um, uh, the legislation has car in recent years, a couple of de decades ago, has carved out an exception for medical procedure patents because if you didn't do that, so you have some doctors that come up with a new tool. Or a new or a new technique, um, and they patent them, right? And so they can actually prevent other doctors from buying these tools unless they 
buy a licensed version, which is going to be sold at a monopoly price. But they can't because of their, because we happen to have an exception in the law. They can't stop another doctor from performing a technique. That's a process, right? So there's an exemption for medical process patents. But but why is this? I mean, think about this. If the patent law is so just and important, why would you make an exception for for surgery? Well, the reason is because the reason is because surgery is very important and it's life saving. But if if you're saying that well, we can tolerate patents except when it really matters, you're admitting that they cause harm, right? It's sort of like affirmative action. Um, you know, everyone's happy with affirmative action for uh, some mid-level manager or something at their company. But do you want your airline pilot to be hired by affirmative action, or do you want them to be hired by the right standards? You really want someone who knows how to fly the goddamn plane. You know, what I mean? so at a certain point, when the rubber hits the road and these laws start having an effect, people back off. Just like when it's just like the minimum wage, people. People say they favor the minimum wage because people don't, don't, don't get paid enough. Of course, they don't get paid enough because of inflation and regulation and all the things that they support. So they're they're really to blame for this, right? But but if you say, well, well, the twenty dollar minimum wage is good, why not a thousand dollar minimum wage? And they'll say, well, that goes too far because they know that it would cause lots of damage. So it's like they're willing to permit a little bit of damage, but not a lot of damage. And that's the same thing with the patent system. They're willing to permit the damage the patent and copyright system causes. But when it goes too far, then they try to you know, saw those rough, those rough edges off to make it more palatable. But they yeah, never so, strike so at the root. So, Stephen, to, to circle back, what was the terminology? What was like the phrase you used? Something servitude? Negative, negative. I have a post on this on my website. Negative, negative servitude or negative easement. Negative it's, easement uh, or negative servitude. So, yeah, for example, if there was a if there was a patent on the mRNA technology, which invoked this uh, combination of the genome, so to speak, then we would essentially be invoking negative servitude on our yeah. body autonomy. Well, in the main the, the main way it would it would work out is that you uh, the uh, Johnson and Johnson and moderna and Pfizer, they would have a negative servitude or a negative easement over the factories of competitors. So they could stop a generic or a, or a junior or a junior company from making a similar drug. So they would be able to use the force of law to stop someone from using their factory to do something. That's a negative. That's a negative easement. But 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 the point is, the guy that owns the factory that's being he he in the law he owns what's called the burden burdened estate. So if I own a house and I grant a negative easement to my neighbor, uh, there's a burden on my estate now. I, I but I created it by contract, so it's perfectly fine because I consented to it. I I've, I now have a I have a burden estate burdened in favor of the negative easement owner, which I granted it to. But in the case so of I, patents, I, the go the government is granting this negative easement by granting the patent to the patent holder, even though the the owner of the burden estate never agreed to it. He didn't consent to it. Got it. Um. And then, did you do you remember the the second question that I had as far as like uh, you know if if IP kind of went away and you wanted to uh, you know in, ensure your uh, you know what you've created or something is locked behind a token uh, you know like you mentioned like Bitcoin like you maybe had a token that existed on the Bitcoin network or a different network uh, and if you could kind of ensure yeah. a, a value subscribed to that that you can uh, that would be kind of an evolution in this in this business model that you're. Kind of proposing? Um, I'm um, 
I'm open to people trying whatever they want to try on the free market, including digital technology. Uh, I'm skeptical of – I'm skeptical that there's a – I don't really think there's a problem to solve. So people think there's this problem that the government solves in an inept way with patent law, but the private, the private, private law could uh, – private technology, the, the free market could solve in a better way. I don't really think there's a problem. I, I think there's nothing wrong with emulation, learning, and competition. Nothing wrong with it at all. It's just a fact of life, and the more we have, the better. And when you when you want to enter a field, you have to take that into account in deciding and figuring out how to make a profit. Um, um, I don't think there's a big problem with record keeping right now. I think that the, the internet and other other technology are fine ways of establishing facts, like who created something, who, who's the real originator of something. Um, I don't really see the blockchain and all this stuff is helping out with that. I my I'm a I'm a Bitcoin maximalist in the sense of I think the blockchain is an extremely inefficient, uh horrible um uh, uh ledger system or, or spreadsheet, but it's the way you have to do a money and it's useful only for money because it's it's a horrible, it's an inefficient ledger, but it's it's the way you need to do a digital money. So it's perfect it for Bitcoin. Sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, well, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but the Bitcoin has NFTs on their on their uh, network now. Uh, they have for a long time. Yeah, that's fine. I think I think uh, I think there's fads and there's and there's. I, I'm a skeptic of NFTs being anything uh, that makes any kind of sense. I think. Okay. When did, people want to do get, it? Go ahead. Yeah, when did, sorry, when did you get introduced to this? Well, can I like, let me interrupt you guys because you can we can carry this on after we end the program. But what I'd like to yeah. do is, is get back, uh, Stefan, and why don't you tell people how they can reach you, your website, email, whatever you want, social media. Yeah, I'm at I'm NS Kinsella, in for Norman, NS Kinsella at, at Twitter and uh, Facebook. And I have a – my main website that's relevant to this is C4SIF.org, stands for Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom. So C4, the number four, C4SIF.org, and StefanKinsella.com.